Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for the Vigilance Press podcast. Tonight's special guest, we have Lucien Solban, who is uh, the author of the upcoming uh, Supernaturals. Because is Supernatural or Supernaturals? I keep wanting to put an S at the end of that. Well, it, uh, they put it. I had it as uh, Supernaturals originally, but mm-hmm. they put it as Supernatural Handbook online. Okay. So, or, so I'm going as Supernatural Handbook. Okay. Okay. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, this is this is your first time on the show, so I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about your background and introduce people to you so that uh, they have uh, an understanding of who we're talking to. And uh, before we do that, let me introduce my co-host for tonight, the uh, the always effervescent Jason Tondro, Doctor Comics. How you doing? I'm I'm swell, thank you. It's, uh, <laughs> I every time I get called co-host, I I, I feel so famous. So. <laughs> Well, the fun thing is, this is your first time coming back on since uh, since you moved. And, the big uh, move, that's right. Yeah. How's the new How's the new house? Well, uh, yeah. So for those that have been, you know, sort of following in or tuning in for the first time, I just moved to Brunswick, Georgia, which is this uh, college town um, uh, about an hour's north of Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, <clears throat> and it's beautiful here. I mean, if I if I can survive the mosquitoes and the other blood sucking insects. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to be in great shape. It's beautiful here. There's tons of great places to eat, and I love my places to eat. Uh, I'm teaching. I'm teaching in the. I'm the newest uh, assistant professor at the English department at the College of Coastal Georgia, and uh, I'm teaching. Thank you very much. It's, it was it was luck. I'll be absolutely honest with you. Uh, uh, but I'm I'm teaching world lit, and uh, uh, which is great because I get to do medieval and Renaissance lit, which is my sort of field, and uh, and I'm I've already become famous as that comics guy, so the guy that does comics on campus, which is which is great. So um, so it's it's a lot of fun, and I'm I'm putting in a lot of work, and and it's it's uh, very exciting. So thank you for asking. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Uh, very um, cool. You you posted a picture of your dog earlier today. Is oh. how yeah. did the dog survive the move? Well, but my uh, we have two, and that's Frankie. She's m- our Malamute puppy, and um, I think she's about six months now. And uh, she hasn't quite figured out that our new house um, is not pee worthy. Um, <laughs> she the 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 old house we were in was tiny. It was like a postage stamp, and uh, and so t- uh, training her was very easy. But now we're at the new house, and the, ha- the new house is very large. And so she's like, oh, okay, well, this is the part of the house I live in, so all the rest of it, P-worthy. <laughs> so she's, she's a little – she's getting a little time getting used to it, but she, she'll do all right. It's a little confusion what's inside and what's outside the, yeah, exactly. uh, the living quarters. Exactly, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, starting off the show with a P-joke is always good. Uh, st- <laughs> we're keeping it classy here. Keep I can see where the bar here. is set. I think I can hit the bar. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, it was very nice uh, meeting Sol- uh, Lucian Solman at Gen Con. Um, I don't know what I expected when I when I met you. I, I, I you know, you, I, I knew you were living up in uh, uh, Canada. You're, you're um, cr- what part of Canada are you from exactly? Uh, I live in uh, Montreal, Quebec. That's right. Yeah, and uh, now I love it here. I've been here for about twenty-five years now. Fantastic! Oh, wow, Lucian, didn't you go to school in, at Northampton? Is that right? No, actually, uh, no. I uh, I went to I was in high school in Houston, Texas, and then I moved up to Montreal. 
Well, actually, I moved up to university outside of Montreal and then into Montreal. Uh, what, what university was that, if I may ask? Uh, the uh, university that I first went to was Bishop's <laughs> University. Oh. And then I moved up to uh, – then I went to Concordia. And I went to, to Concordia in a field um, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Excellent. What was it? What did, you, what did you get your degree in? I got my degree in drama and education, teaching theater oh. to kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is, cool. that is GM training right there. Well, it is GM training, but the problem is, is that I think I found the only field that pays less than game writing. So <laughs> I moved up. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, I I, I kind of knew I was gonna hit it off with you though when you when you, when I first when I first laid eyes on you and you were wearing that button up uh, Optimus Prime shirt uh, <laughs> that I was instantly jealous of and I'm like I think we'll find something to talk about. <laughs> I wasn't too worried. I actually had a bouncer at a nightclub try to buy the shirt off of me. Oh yeah, and I'm like, what? What? What am I supposed to wear? And he's like, you can take my shirt. I'm like, um, yeah, no, I'm keeping Optimus. <laughs> did, did you Did you see those shots of the Optimus Prime Green Lantern that came out this week? No, I haven't. There, there was apparently a, a very big deal that the DC and um, uh, IDW were planning a Transformers Justice League crossover series. Yep. Ooh. They just and, announced it. Yeah. But it, but it was apparently um, torpedoed when the new 52 launched. Um. But, but the original art, the, Phil Jimenez was doing the art. Okay, very and, nice. And, and the art was released. And, we, and amongst the various shots, and one of which, my, fav, my absolute favorite, was Wonder Woman's invisible jet transformer. Oh. Right? Yeah. Is, that, is that genius or what? That is genius. I'm gonna to have to find that actually. I, I, okay. would, I would, I would, I would instantly trade the new Fifty Two for that. Yeah, seriously. But there was also Optimus Prime as Green Lantern with a Green Lantern ring. Mm-hmm. Ah, very sweet. Yeah, um, very cool. Very cool. How, how more appropriate? I mean, the the only the only thing I would I would say is he's got the right colors for Superman, but still, I mean, he's got the personality for a Green Lantern totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you if you had made him as Superman, it kind of would it would have been the obvious choice. Right. Yeah. I kind of like that they went the uh, Green Lantern route, especially since the Green Lantern is all about will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what would what would be neat would be is seeing all of the Green Lantern constructs he would make, because of course they would all be Transformers, right? <laughs> oh, that's true. But now, now here's a question: If you're talking about the Green Lantern that has the weakness to yellow, what does uh, that do with Bumblebee? Oh, that's a very. <laughs> Yeah, see, so then what you do is, is you have the bad guys like mind control Bumblebee and have Bumblebee cold cock him, right? Oh, yeah, true. Either that or you have Megatron throwing Bumblebee a la, you know, the X-Men speed uh, fastball. Oh, the fastball special. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> see, we're geeks too. Trust us. <laughs> I had no doubts. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, your history in contributing to role-playing games real quick and, and fill people in on uh, the things you've working you've been working in role-playing games just from what I'm looking at here since at least 1993 right uh, yeah thereabouts 19 1991 to 93 is when I first started getting into it and I kind of stumbled into it mm-hmm. um, uh, at the time I had a friend of mine who was working at uh, Bianis publications which later on went on to become dream pod 9. Right and right and so the thing is that Yanis Publications was doing the Protoculture Addicts, which was this um, Robotech fanzine, 
Mm-hmm. Or at, no, uh, sorry, there were actually more than a fanzine, but they were doing uh, Robotech. And uh, they started getting into role-playing games, and most of the people that were writing for uh, Yanis Publications at the time were French-speaking. So my friend said, look, we need, uh, we need an English writer, we need somebody that understands English well, so could you please do some editing for us? So I, had, I got my start doing editing of role-playing games, uh, particularly, um, what was it called? It was, they had the license to do a cyberpunk spinoff, I think, Knight's Edge, which was basically oh, vampires the- and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had that book. It's on my shelf. Right. So that's where I got my start, was doing editing uh-huh. for their modules. And then they, offered, then they said, would you like to write for them? So I started writing. Uh, my first two source books were for them. Fantastic. You know, I used to actually collect uh, Protoculture Addicts. The, the oh, magazine. really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, that was about the same time that I was discovering uh, anime. And okay. uh, getting into it, so um, that's really cool. I, I, I seem to remember one of the first times I ever saw mention of uh, of Evangelion was in Protoculture Addicts. Right, and at the time they were, I think, one of the few uh, Western magazines that was that was covering uh, anime because at that time it was still an underground thing. It was a it was a time where you were still getting your anime by you know bootleg uh, yeah. VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, which actually I had to do a lot. <laughs> yeah, same here. So, yeah, that that's really cool. I didn't realize you had that uh, that um, introduction. I, I I noticed a couple of things in here that you were working on uh, that you worked on the Tenchi Mio uh, G, uh, role playing game that was based right. on uh, Big Eyes Small Mouth, right? Right. Uh, I, I was uh, working for Guardians of Order at the time, and I was brought in not as a writer, but as the line developer for um, uh, Hong Kong Action Theater 2nd uh, Edition and for uh, Heaven and Earth 2nd Edition. Um, and I also ended up by doing uh, editing work on their Big Eyes Small Mouth uh, books. So, you know, Tenchi Mio, and I. Uh, uh, I also did work on their Lane fan guide and Lane was probably one of my favorite animes at the time. I mean, uh, when I saw it, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Serial Experiments, Lane? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was a great show. It was, it was fantastic. Not that I understood half of what was going on in it, but I just <laughs> loved it. Um, so, yeah, I was working for DreamPod 9 in that capacity, and I had even started, they had just uh, started the idea that they wanted to do the uh, Silver Age Sentinels book, yeah. and I had just started helping them... Um, uh, deal with that, but then I had to leave. Uh, I left Guardians of Order at the time, so I wasn't able to uh, uh, follow through with that. What, did you work on Silver Age Sentinels at all? A little bit. Uh, you'll find a, you'll you'll find like maybe my fingerprint on a page or two. Yeah. But uh, but in terms of I was there for the initial discussion and even for I think one of the characters in there is mine. One of the one of the. Uh, the characters, but I'll be honest with you, after 90 books, uh, after editing and writing and contributing to over 90 books, I can't tell you what I actually contributed to. I think it was Cruise Writer. Can I ask you a question about Silver yeah. Sentinels? Please. So, so I, I, I don't know a lot about this. Maybe, maybe the, maybe, James, maybe you already know this already, but, but I don't. What happened to that game? I mean, what it, why is there only the one book and that's it for that game? So, uh, the reason why Silver Age Sentinels I don't uh, wasn't around for uh, for long I was because uh, 
it was a strong, I think it was a good game, but uh, it was in competition with um, uh, Mutants and Masterminds. I don't know what the market, uh, how the market was at that time in terms of reception of superhero games. I think it was, uh, uh, you know, taking away competition. Uh, they were competing with each other. Mm-hmm. But honestly, uh, the Silver Age Sentinels did release a few books. Guardians of Order was supporting it. And um, I just think when the company started realizing that uh, it was going to be closing down, then it started petering out the lines that they were doing. So, I mean, Mutants and Masterminds has the benefit of having continued on for uh, a good what? They're going on eight years now? Uh, I want to say they started in... um 2003, 2004, off the top of my head. So, yeah, eight, eight nine years at this point. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think uh, I think Silver Age Sentinels was around for possibly around what maybe four, three to four years. Lucian, what you had you had a book to give away, right? Well, actually, for the winner of this, uh, they will receive a copy of Lockdown, a copy of Hero High, and a copy of Freedom's Most Wanted. Wow, oh, three books. Those are, those are great yeah. books. Those are good books. Thank you. And um, the runner-up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to donate some prizes to this too, so we can have more people. Um, oh, very cool. Some prizes. I'm gonna. Uh, so um, the 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 two runners-ups are going to get um, some free PDFs from Vigilance Press. Uh, I'll give you a choice: the Icons version or the Mutants and Masterminds versions of um, the number number two person will get a uh, copy of uh, the October Men Special Edition, a free coupon for that, and the number three person will get uh, Smoke and Mirrors. And you can choose nice. either Icons or Mutants and Masterminds for that. Um, just to keep the theme, you know, the nice spooky supernatural theme going. Um, so let's tell people the rules, Lucian. All right, so what happens is, uh, is I have a riddle here. It'll be, uh, it'll be in three parts, with this being part one. And after I say it, I'll ask a question based on the riddle. And the first person that writes on the uh, forms, uh, which forms would you like them to write on? We're, we're, we're going to have people answer this on the, uh, uh, on the Vigilance Press website, the www.vigilancepress.com, the blog post for this podcast. Um, don't use the Podbean blog because Podbean has been a little flaky about reporting when things get sent in. So sometimes I don't get an email that tells me somebody's somebody's responded to a post. Rep- uh, go to vigilancepress.com directly to the, uh, the, the blog post that's on the front page and just respond to that post. Uh, and right. the, the first person responding will be the, uh, with the correct answer will be uh, the winner. And then the next two people who respond will be the runners up. All right, cool. So here's the first part of the riddle. Smell not the bouquet when flushed, nor take exultation in their flight. All right. How many parts are this to there to this riddle? <clears throat> Two more parts, total of three parts. Okay. I'll try and time this out so that people uh, uh, who are listening to the whole podcast will get a chance to, to answer it by the end of the podcast. So, All right. Uh, we'll 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 uh, have the second riddle um, at some point in the near future. I won't say when. We'll Lucian, find, we we'll find a natural break in the in the podcast. What's that, Jason? Can you repeat that once more for us? Certainly. Smell not the bouquet when flushed, 
nor take exultation in their flight. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm thinking. All right. All right. Cool. Keep, I, I was gonna. Inside. I was no gonna add one. <laughs> yeah. No answers out loud. Um, no, I, I got it. Okay. What I was going to say, though, was in addition to the question that you asked uh, about uh, the, um, uh, the success of um, uh, Silver Age Sentinels and uh, yeah. why it wasn't around as long, uh, I'll be honest. After I had left Guardians of Order, I, um, I left Guardians of Order and I was still doing work on delivering uh, uh, a project for White Wolf called Orpheus, which was a six-part limited series. Right. And then I had my head buried in that. And then afterwards, that kind of marked my departure from role-playing games when I shifted over to writing for video game companies. Yeah, so I saw I, on your website. I saw all these video games on your website. Right, and so I didn't have my head in role-playing games for yeah. a few years. So when yeah. all this stuff started coming out with Guardians of Order having to close down yeah. uh, and everything, uh, from my understanding, the lines had continued up to that point, so there were a few books for uh, Silver Age Sentinels, but Guardians of Order was supporting multiple books and multiple different projects, so it was just one of the things that they had in their development cycle. And they were a small company, so they couldn't have, you know, uh, they couldn't focus on one product alone or one product line alone. That stands to reason. Yeah. So, what else would you, uh, gentlemen, like to know? All right. Well, since uh, since you um, brought up uh, Orpheus, um, that was uh, one of the games that. Um, uh, my friend Rick Jones really liked and uh, wanted me to to mention that. So, what do Thank you think? Uh, I mean, what, can you can you give us a, a breakdown? I have actually never seen the game, so if you could tell okay. somebody about it, what was that about? All right. Well, um, from a just from the bare bones um, uh, take on it, uh, what Orpheus was was an attempt to relaunch Wraith, but without the. Uh, without the really crippling mythology that they had attached to it, that basically it set the barrier of entry for any player and GM exceedingly high. So the number of people who played it, I mean, I had a lot of respect for the people that played the original Wraith because um, I wasn't sure how you would work with that game. I liked it. I liked the ambiance. I liked the mood. But there were too many degrees of separation between the audience and the product. So they gave me the opportunity. They said, we want to rewrite Wraith. Um, how would you do it? And so I met with White Wolf, and we started talking about it. And I tried to do something a little bit more grounded in uh, the world around us. Because the original Wraith, a lot of it took place in, um, in, in the Shadowlands and in other places where there was no real connection to the, uh, there was no connection to the real world. And I wanted to ground it more in the real world in the way that we saw uh, ghosts and ghost stories. Cool. So this is this uh, this edge of horror is is you're no stranger to that. Um, uh, I, I love I actually, horror. Actually, I remember picking up the original Wraith, and um, uh, I kind of wondered if Orpheus had a connection to it. So that's that's really cool. I've I, I've liked the look of Wraith, but again, I think I think you're right. I think uh, I never really picked it up because it just felt like I didn't know how to build a character without reading hours and hours of background material. So right. And Wraith was a very interesting experiment because we first approached it, we talked about doing it in the traditional splat book format, which was release the core book, talk about the different splats, the different archetypes, each book dealing with a certain archetype. And they knew they wanted a limited series, and it was, it was going to be anywhere from six to ten books. And so I then said, well, look, I mean, if we're doing this, then why not create 
a overarching storyline. Each book advances the plot, yeah. but by advancing the plot, it also introduces new archetypes, new powers. And I've been, and it's been something that I've been doing with role playing books ever since, with Lockdown, yeah. with Hero High, and now with Supernaturals, which is let's always give players a variety of different tools so that they can either go with what's written there or they can adapt it and start making things their own, which I think is, is, is pivotal for, uh, for role-playing games. That idea of, of putting out source books which also advance a common storyline, um, that players love that. They, they, they love the fact that, that they feel like they've been paid back when they buy the second and the third and the fourth book and they get everything. They get the right. story because they've been reading the previous chapters. This was, the, the, I think, um, the, the best feature of the old Palladium, uh, like Rift and stuff like that, you know, those games. Right. Um, the, the rules were, in, were, were so awkward. I, I never would play that game. But they were fun to read the books just to see how the storyline moved. Right. Well, and that's the thing is that with Orpheus, what I really wanted to do was it wasn't enough for me. I think it's not enough just to have a storyline and just to advance the storyline. What I really think you need to do is engage the players or the fans in such a way that they're talking about it and they're making theories of their own and they're yeah. coming up and they're they have and they're and they're making conjectures conjectures and they're coming up with um, they're coming up with their own ideas of where things are going and either that gets rewarded or yeah. they get surprised or in some yeah. instances they may be disappointed with the direction but you keep it open enough that with Orpheus I said look this is the way the storyline um, continues but if you still want to keep the world the way it is without advancing the storyline this is yeah. what you can do and this is how you can use the book in that manner yeah good 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 so player tools yeah totally exactly yeah yeah I'm a, I'm a big fan of that myself and uh, that's actually a direction that uh I got a lot of hints from uh, talking to Jack Norris, um, who's also worked with White Wolf. So, okay, um, cool. That that seems to be a, uh, a common theme of some of the better uh, writing to come out of uh, that genre, or that era of role playing games. I really do think that uh, the vampire, you know, whether you ever liked it or played it or not, I do think that that uh, focus on story um, uh, really helped kind of create a new paradigm shift in role playing games in general. Yeah. Um, so you did you did tons of work on Dark Ages, didn't you? Vampire Dark Ages. I worked on I worked on Dark Ages. Um, were, uh, did Constantinople by night and uh, uh, did some work on their uh, on their Middle Eastern source book, including. I ended up by doing a lot of by night books in terms of for location. So, um, you know, uh, Mexico City by night, uh, Montreal by night, Constantinople by night, and even a chapter on Damascus by night in, in one of their books. So you know, I sort of became the um, the the unholy tour guide of White Wolf. <laughs> That's your business card there, right there. Unholy. You know, that, actually, that should be my business card. That's... Why haven't I ever done that? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so so let's let's um, let's let's take a quick sidetrack here and talk a little bit about you. You went from role playing games at this point to start working on video games. Tell us a little bit about your work in video games. Uh, well, the um, my work in video games, I started with doing uh, script doctoring for a uh, a project that ended up by being vaporware. Mm -hmm. um, so never went anywhere. But by that point, uh, I realized, hey, uh, they, they they pay a lot of money. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I, and I was lucky. The, the gentleman who I told you about who got me into writing for Yanis Publications slash DreamPod9 ended up by moving into video games, and he ended up by getting me my first contracts in video games. Uh, Jean Carrier, who was, um, who was uh, involved with DreamPod9 for a good number of years, was uh, fairly involved with the company at the time, and then ended up by going off to uh, Artificial Mind and uh, Movement, where... Uh, he brought me in to work on DS contracts. In the meantime, uh, my friend, Josh Mosquera, who uh, I had involved, um, when, I, when I was told to pitch for Montreal by night, they, they said, we're doing a Sabbat book, and it's going to be the first Sabbat city book and, uh, for Vampire the Masquerade, and we really want somebody that understands the city, and we want somebody that really has uh, a dark... Uh, uh, a dark take on things. Yeah, you're the, so, you're the best guy in the business to write that book. You're like the perfect person to write that book. Well, I, thanks. I appreciate it. I don't know if I'm the best person to write for it. I, I just happen to be very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, they opened it up to a variety of people to pitch. But a lot of people who knew Montreal were saying, oh, no, Montreal isn't a Sabbat city. It's, it's a Camarilla city. Uh-huh. And they tried to do their own take on it rather than trying to work within the, within the constraints of, uh, of White Wolf. Well, you've got to work with your editor. Right, exactly. But a lot of a lot of people don't understand that, um, which yeah. is unfortunate. James, I'm, I, I try to work with my editor. I swear to God, <laughs> <laughs> you've been very good at working with me. Thank you. I try. I try. <laughs> All right, please go on. <laughs> I, I'm sensing a backstory here. Uh, <laughs> no, I think uh, I think I think I think it's just amusing that uh, you know you brought it up. We've we've uh, we've had discussions on how positive. Um, uh, and important it is uh, for for a, a, a freelancer to yeah. to understand to understand the the needs of the publisher and 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 the editor to uh, you know to make a book that you know is satisfying creatively to the author and at right. the same time is satis- you know is going to satisfy the uh, the the market goals of the the publisher. So yeah. it's yeah. it's yeah. a team effort and um, I think a lot of the people who self-publish in role-playing games yeah. are used to the the control and satisfaction of putting yeah. a product together by Which, themselves in like And let's be honest, way. that's that's the only satisfaction to, <laughs> to, to self-publishing usually because yeah. you don't make any money from it. You you just right. do it because you have this vision and you want to do it, but but when we're when we sign on to work with somebody else and we agree that hey James you're going to handle all that stuff that I don't want to handle um, that that means signing on to the partnership of well I I need somebody to write a book that's like X and I'm like well I can do that can I do also do Y like as long as we can come to an agreement all's good mm-hmm. right <laughs> yeah. and that's it yeah. and that's the compromise but um, so so yeah it's a uh, it's it, you know it's always good to have that. Desire, you know, to, to you know to to satisfy yourself creatively, but you also have to be able to adapt to the team mechanic, and that's yeah. something that uh, I've been very lucky with so far, as far as pulling people on board with Vigilance Press and uh, and finding the right people. So, well, that, that's good because I mean the thing is that that's one of the lessons that if you ever plan on writing for role playing games or even for video games, it is a team effort. It is a collaboration, and in the end, you have to understand that if you are working for these companies and you are pay for yeah. hire, guess yeah. what? They are not your words. They are not your ideas. And sometimes you're going to have to put up with even a lot of abuse. White Wolf had some of the nastiest editors around, not because they were just 
not just not because they were uh, mean, but because they were very exacting and they were very uh, honest and upfront about what they wanted, and they could be insulting uh, when they didn't see what they wanted. I mean, um, I'm proud to say that I survived like the Justin Achille boot camp. Uh, Justin Achille being the Vampire the Masquerade developer, but he was probably one of the harshest um, editors I have, uh, or line developers that I have ever worked under, and I'm grateful for what I learned uh, going through him. And I mean, at one point, I even asked him, I said, look, I get back the manuscript, and it's been butchered. I mean, I see blood everywhere on this thing. I'm like, why do you guys keep on using me if, if there's so much editing on this? And he goes, it's because you get it right on the second draft. Yeah. And uh, I think that's important because the reason – the way I made the leap from role-playing games into video games uh, was by understanding that when you have somebody vouch for you, okay – like my best friend Jean Carrier, who vouched for me, who got me to write for, to edit for role-playing games, and then got me my first work in video games, and Josh Mascara, who was one of my co-writers on Montreal by Night, yeah. uh, because I had approached, and then I basically told my friend Philip Boulle, who went on to become the, um, who went on to become the kindred of the East developer at yeah. White Wolf, I, I. I asked Phil. I said, "Look, I'm going to need help writing this book. I can't do it on my own." And he said, "Well, I have a friend of mine named Josh." I worked with Josh. The three of us worked beautifully together. Josh moved into video games, and when he moved into video games, he said, hey, um, we're doing uh, Warhammer 40K, and they need a writer uh, for Dawn of War. Would you be interested in, uh, uh, in, in, in trying out for it? And that's how I got my first really big video game contract. Yeah. But it sort of goes to prove to me that it's not a matter of, you know, you hear the old adage of it's who you know. And, you know, it's not just a matter of who you know. It's whose trust you validate. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You know. It's how you've treated the people you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's it's very easy to meet a lot of people. As I found out, it's very easy to meet a lot of people in the role-playing game industry. All you have to do is go to a good gaming con like Gen Con or Origins. <laughs> you know, they're very happy to meet you. But, right. But, you know, you have to really prove that you're – Bringing you know your your stick-to-itiveness, not just uh, talent or or right. You know, um, the the mob has an ability. Yeah. <laughs> right. In, in the mob, they call you an earner. There you go. Right. An <laughs> earner. Okay. Are you a guy who actually makes money for the mob, or are you just some guy trying to ride along on everybody else's coattails? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think that was the term that was thrown around in uh, in sales, but uh, I, I don't. Was it? <laughs> well, I only, as everyone will know, everyone who's listening to this podcast will understand. I learned everything I know about the world from role playing games. So I I learned about mob slang in this case from Steve Long's old Dark Champions books. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, I have that book too. The ones I'm talking about. I love Steve Long's and, books. And and he wrote all this stuff about the mob and the mafia. And Steve, if you're listening, I still have those books. Um, and. Uh, and and I made I used that stuff as inspiration for all kinds of things. I would create a fantasy mafia based on Steve's description of the real world mafia. It was so much right. Fun. Yeah. No, definitely. And I do have to give one more uh, tip of the hat to Richard Dansky. Okay, uh, Richard Dansky was a Wraith developer. He he gave me my first shot at a White Wolf book uh, oh. with Wraith. And um, ever since then, Richard's always 
been Richard being an amazing fellow to begin with has always given me opportunities and contracts. Yeah. And when he moved into video games and he said, "Hey, listen, Montreal, they need a, a writer for Rainbow Six Vegas uh, or for Rainbow Six, I got the gig that way was because wow. of Richard Dansky. So, yeah, I um, most of my video game work has come through from people that used to be in the RPG industry. So. Yep. It was an easy leap to make when I had some really awesome people paving the way for me. Are you working on video games still now? Oh, yeah. That's actually my 9-to-5 job. I uh, just finished up a stint on uh, Far Cry 3 as a story designer. Okay. And um, I'm now on another project which uh, cannot be named. Yes. um, Yeah, uh, I'm still… Can you tell uh, us what what company it is? Yeah, uh, I work for uh, Ubisoft Montreal. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, and before that, I was with Eidos for uh, a little bit of time, for about uh, six months or so, and I helped a little bit on um, Deus Ex Human Revolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, it's uh, the way I described it to somebody. I love working in video games. Don't get me wrong. But if there's anything that has the, uh, a corporate mindset in entertainment, it's working for video game companies. <laughs> you know? So it's like, okay, I write for, I write for pay in, in, with video game companies and I write to their spec and their needs and I understand their marketing concerns and I understand game design and I write whatever they need. And then at night yeah. I go home and I write for RPGs and for myself. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. So what did bring you back to RPGs? If you, you, know, you, you said you'd taken a, a, some time away from it. Uh, what, what brought you back? Well, I always kept my uh, hands in RPG writing by writing for uh, uh, Mutants and Masterminds. I mean, um, when I left, I had done Orpheus, and I thought Orpheus was going to be my swan song. It was sort of like my salute to the industry. Thank you very much. I had a fantastic time. You guys were great. Um, and then I, uh, I'd been talking with Steve about writing for Mutants and Masterminds, and I said, look, uh, right now I've kind of I've kind of had my fill of doing multi collaboration projects. So if I wrote anything, I'd kind of like to do a whole source book. And Steve went, "Yeah, okay, sure." I was like, "Oh, uh, that was rather easy." <laughs> <laughs> so um, I pitched. I started pitching ideas, and for a while there, I'd pitch an idea every year and a half, two years, and they would say go. So the first one was uh, lockdown. And then the second one was Hero High, and then uh, Supernatural uh, Handbook, uh, which took longer to come out. But I understand exactly why that happened, and you know I don't fault Green Ronin at all for it. I, I understand the situation that they were in. And now I've actually pitched a fourth book to Green Ronin, which will remain, which I'll uh, remain nameless. And I'm waiting to hear if I get a yay or a nay on that one, though. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I, I was a big, uh, I was definitely a big fan of Lockdown when it came out because you actually scooped me. Oh, did I? Yeah, oh, do you, okay. Did you ever read Escape from Alcatraz? It was an M&M adventure. Um, I, I also did a big supervillain prison adventure for M&M Second okay. right when it came out, and uh, it was one of the first third-party products ever published for Second Edition M&M. Okay. And and I was working on it as lockdown was coming out because they were doing like little little uh, promos for it. They would release a character here or a character there or something on, right. on the Atomic Think Tank. And so I, I had to figure out I, – I thought about it and I figured out a way to – lockdown came out a little bit before me. Okay. So I was able to figure out a way to contrast my version of the super prison, which I set in Alcatraz, with your version of the super prison and actually – 
got to write a whole column kind of about how to use all of these super prisons in the same world and how to make them, well, why, why would a villain go to one prison as opposed to the other or how are they right. different and, and that sort of stuff. No, so I think that's perfect actually, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and, and, and it, it was interesting and it was a good challenge and, and um, there's so much of a long legacy of these supervillain prison modules going back to, what, Escape from Stronghold? Was that what it was yeah. called? Yeah, the yeah. one? Um, mm-hmm. And and it's just such a and then we were both doing these books right at the same time that Bendis relaunches the New Avengers with a huge supervillain breakout um, <laughs> storyline. It was it was karma, man. It was great. Yeah, it was. I, I blame lockdown on all the episodes of uh, Oz that I watched. <laughs> no, but. Uh, I, you know, the thing is that that's the thing is that uh, I think when you're talking about something like super prisons and everything, there's always more than enough source material to go around because I really approached it from the edge of the privatization of prisons. That's right. Yes, you did. Yeah. 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 So. And that and that was uh, they're they're still talking about a Green Arrow movie based on a super lockdown prison. Well, that was oh, really? actually, okay. well, that was actually uh, David Goyer's pitch about five, six years ago, from what yeah. I heard, and yeah. uh, they haven't moved on that yet, so I'm thinking yeah. they, they probably decided not to go with that. They, well, they did go with the uh, the Arrow TV series, which yes. does have a dark, edgy version of Green Arrow in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be interesting to see. I've... Uh, I'm kind of curious about it, but uh, after the run on Smallville, because I kind of got out of Smallville at its low point when it was really, really dragging. Yeah. Because I mean, I kind of like I, I kind of like superheroes. That's why I liked Iron Man. I loved yeah. Iron Man because you didn't have this hero that was going through all these questionings and should I be a hero? Shouldn't I be a hero? <laughs> why was I cursed with these powers? You had a guy going, "I, I can do this stuff. This is awesome. I'm going to make the most out of it." He, I mean, he has he has his "I am Iron Man" moment. Right. Yep. Yeah. I am Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it was like that. It was. It was refreshing. It was refreshing, especially with the CW where, um, and uh, and all these other series where it just kept on having these false moments of, does she love me? Doesn't he love me? I love you, but I can't be with you. And it's like, oh, for the love of God, will somebody just punch a supervillain, please? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put a pause here in the in the. Uh... <coughs> in the uh, conversation just to interject. I think it's time for a uh, second part of the riddle here. Okay. So I'll let Lucian take it away. All right. So I'm going to read now uh, the first line as a refresher, and then I'm going to read the second line. Is that okay? That's great. Awesome. All right. So the first line is, Smell not the bouquet when flushed, nor take exaltation in their flight. Second line, Murder not their unkindness, nor seek parliament with the, undu- uh, with the uneducated brood and gaggle. I'll read that again. Murder not their unkindness, nor seek parliament with the uneducated brood and gaggle. You are not making this one easy. No, I am not. <laughs> I'm giving away three books. That's true. <laughs> All right. Hopefully we'll get at least three entries. Well, you know what? It, players are always going to be smarter than their GMs. There's that's no true. way that's around true. it. So, and that, that's kind of an interesting problem when when doing supernatural and, and horror uh, and superhero games. I mean, one of the problems right. with superhero games in general, you've got uh, so many ways that a character can build. You know, I, you get you get the player character who goes, "I want to build a telepath," and the GM, you know, 
in, in, in a panic, might sit back and go, well, okay, there goes any chance of running a mystery, mur- you know, murder mystery. It's like, right. it's gone. And, um, you know, there are ways around that. You have to learn how to work with it and, and, and be a little more dynamic. I think, for me, it's always been a fun challenge as opposed to, you know, something where I had to try and block my players from, from playing the character they wanted. But... I know right, a lot but, of GMs get get frustrated by that. How do you? But that that's the point, though. Of, of uh, that's the exact reason, or that's the exact approach of how I wrote Supernatural, which was, if you are going to run a superhero uh, a superhero game with a horror element to it, well, if you have the heroes that can punch out anything, okay, yeah. uh, and can just solve it with physical violence or with, with force, well, then how do you how do you frighten them? How do you make them scared? Yeah. And the book is dealing with those questions of, well, what if you went on the social angle? What if you went at this route? What if you used this? And with always, um, I'd probably say that unlike Hero High, um, Supernatural is very much of an almost, in some ways, uh, giving rules to a meta approach to horror. And it even starts off with a discussion of, is horror a genre or is it a mood? Which yeah. is a big question that is being, you know, which is a big question to you in, in invariably here around horror uh, writers. Yeah, I um, my go-to book on horror has always been Ken Heights, uh, GURPS Horror. Okay, yeah, yeah. Various, good book. His, his various editions of that book, but right. I, I totally see where you're set, what you're getting at here that you're presenting more like a you no know, Hero High was sort of a, almost like a setting. It had characters and it had. You know, kind of a it was a place. Whereas this is more of a genre book. Is that fair? Well, in some ways it is. I mean, the thing is that Hero High was also a genre book, but with all the books, there's always going to be uh, something. Like I said before, um, I I think what happens is when I my approach to writing nowadays, my approach to any source book is and the kitchen sink approach. Yeah, right. Okay, so I want anybody who picks up the book to find something in there that they can use, which is why there's always my books are going to have a player section for you know what are uh, what are the constraints a player may face, what are the agreements that have to exist between a player and a GM to do this uh, uh, to to play in a horror game, you know these sorts of things. What uh, uh, how do various skills apply? All those sorts of things are I think. Are things that players will need to know in addition to uh, giving them some crunchy rule stuff. And then there's also the GM section. And then after that, there's also the, well, here's an application of everything that I've been talking about in this location or in this organization or uh, in these groups of people. So I always try and and make sure that no matter what I'm talking about, even if it's uh, highly theoretical, that there's always a gameplay application to it. Right. So this would allow us, if we wanted to do a Hellboy campaign, for example, we could. This would be a go-to book for us. Uh, yes, I hope so. Uh, I'm always leery about saying yes. This is the book that you absolutely need to pick up because it answers everything. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I will even tell you what happens in the next season of Supernatural. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never really sold myself that way, but I will say that. Um, the Supernatural Handbook is very much a labor of love. It's taken everything that I've enjoyed about horror, everything that I like as a horror writer, and said, okay, this is how you can break everything down. Let's break it down to the... uh, uh, I'm about to use video game speak here. Okay. Okay, so let's break it down to the atomic parameters so that you can start mixing and matching things and rebuild it up in however you want to see it. 
So basically, here are all the parts of Frankenstein's monster. Now, what kind of Frankenstein's monster are you going to build? How big is the book? Uh, the book is um, originally it was ninety thousand words, and so nice. basically about the size of Hero High. Yeah. And then they told me that the book was unfortunately going to be uh, delayed, and at which point I said, okay, awesome. Does that mean I have enough time to edit it? And, oh, yes, would you mind if I added more material to it because there were still things that I wanted to cover? Okay. So, yeah, they were gracious enough to allow me to add a few more things. So I think it's probably closer to um, 100,000. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a meaty novel right there. And you did the whole thing yourself. That's yes, awesome. I did the. Well, I so am I'm egotistical that way. I have to admit, <laughs> I want to do that book. I want to do the whole thing. So yeah, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. James knows this. I'm the same. Way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, one of the things that uh, I was going to ask you, since we're on supernaturals already, um, what what you know, and 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 you know. There's there's kind of the the approach people ask you know can I use this to to do a Hellboy game you know I think that's the the most common way it's been phrased but my question right. is I'm going to turn it around a little bit and maybe yeah. make it easier for you to answer what were your inspirations as far as comic books go yeah. uh, in 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 approaching this book oh boy um, all right so. My inspiration as far as comic books uh, were concerned, I'd probably say what was forefront in my head was probably Hellboy and BPRD yeah. because I'm a huge fan of Mike Mignola and his universe. Um, so there was a, a lot of this uh, – for a lot of it was inspired by that. There was also uh, the basic inspiration from uh, – uh, did either of you gentlemen ever read uh, Tintin? Oh, sure. Yeah, I know Tintin. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah, so the uh, – I, I can't – well, which book was it called? The Seven <clears throat> Crystal Balls? I haven't read that one, but I know what you're talking about, yeah. Right. So what happens is in one sequence, there's this hallucination of, um, of an, Incan, uh, or an Incan mummy coming back to life. Yeah. And it yeah. was a really creepy scene. And so, you know, my inspirations have been across the board. I mean, I used to read the, uh, the, old, uh, the old creepy comics. I used to read the old EC and the Keystone co- uh, yeah. horror comics. You know, I, I, I love them. So uh, Creature Commandos, I don't know if yeah. you remember that. So well, they, just, they just got relaunched, so yeah. Oh, did, oh fantastic. Well, so the, I remember, in the New 52, Frank, it's called Frankenstein Agent of Shade, I think. But, okay. but he's, he's, got a, he's got a sort of new version of the Creature Commandos fighting alongside him. It's very much DC's attempt to do Hellboy. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Yeah. So as far as the inspiration was concerned, I tried not to focus on just one thing as far as inspiration yeah. was, or else you'd end up by losing a lot. So my inspiration was everything from BPRD, Hellboy, uh, Leave It to Chance, um, uh, uh, The Walking Dead, uh, yeah. all these different comics, even um, uh, Marvel Zombies, mm. uh, Nightmares of Future Past, which was a, which was a horror story on its own. Yeah. Um, you know all these different books. Anything, anything dealing with horror, post-apocalyptic, even the X-Men uh, Annual where they fought Dracula and Storm had been turned into a vampire. I, I remember it very well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, so I was taking as much inspiration as I could from uh, various comics, uh, Lock and Key. I mean, all these are uh, House of Mystery. These are all comics that I read or have read, and you know that I enjoy and I, I continue reading. I love horror, and so uh, the Supernatural Handbook is really kind of 
it, in many ways, it's what Orpheus was um, for me as well, which was giving everybody saying, look, this is a labor of love. Here's my labor of love. I'm pouring everything I have into it. Here you go. Uh, do with yeah. it what you will. And the Supernatural Handbook is the same. It's why I can't wait for its release. I've been sitting <laughs> on this thing for like three years now. Yeah. And people, <laughs> and, and people going, what's going on with the book? And me, have my fingers over the keyboard going, I can't say anything. Ah. So <laughs> so it's good to finally unlock your word hoard on this one. Um, <laughs> oh, you just dropped a Beowulf reference. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> one of the things, yeah, which which is kind of a, uh, you know, in a way it can be uh, uh, told as a horror, horror story oh, on its own. Go, all right, everyone, gold star for James. He dropped a Beowulf reference. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things I really love about horror in comics is how much it borrows from mythology and how much how much it sort of underscores in a way how how comic book heroes are are modern myths. I mean like when you tell a horror story, a successful horror story with Superman in it, you're really you're really playing the game right. Right. So um one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, is I mean this 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 book, you know, seems like it's it's kind of, you know, really, really helping to outline how to run a horror campaign. Mm-hmm. But you could just as easily borrow a lot of these ideas and use it to run just a horror episode in your favorite yeah. supers campaign. Yeah. And that's exactly the uh, that's the exact point. Of, that's one of the points that I also made in the book was, or that I try to make is, how do you run do you how do you run a long term campaign, short term campaign, all that sort of thing. Yeah. I really take the kitchen sink approach to mm-hmm. uh, to this stuff. But I apologize. Go ahead. No. Uh, well, so the question is, if you can tell this without spoiling too much of the book, okay. what, what would be what would be like a, a helpful suggestion for for something like this, where you're going to kind of surprise the players and 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 have them take their usual kind of four color or you know silver age or bronze age characters, and then take them through a horror story? What would your approach to that be? Well, if you're talking about something, a typical four-color thing where you're talking about the, uh, you know, uh, Superman or, uh, you know, anybody of the power level of, let's say, you know, uh, X-Men team, Superman team, whatever, um, I think it's a very tricky thing because what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to avoid screwing around with their powers or using their powers as their weakness because the, the most common thing to do, and I think the Superman movies inevitably fail along the way because of this, is because... What do they use against Superman in order to make him more, um, to make him easier to fight? Kryptonite. It's, it's, it's Lex Luthor and it's Kryptonite again. And it's after a while you think, you're thinking, you know, if I was Superman, I think I would have learned by this point to run around in a lead suit and punch people with a lead suit on. Uh, <laughs> or or know, come but, up with some sort of inoculation against Kryptonite. Yeah, exactly. But so what ends up by happening is uh, the, mo- the easiest thing to do, okay, and it's certainly not, uh, it's certainly, uh, not something that a GM should avoid. But the easiest thing to do would be, well, I'm going to strip them of their powers. Well, okay, that's fine for one time. The minute you do it more than once, because horror is going to be about the constant onslaught of things, and it's going to be about uh, the repetition of things, you strip away their power once, okay, fine. You might be able to frighten them for that session, but then after that, it loses its teeth. Yeah, it becomes just a GM dick move. Right, exactly. Okay. And so what happens is, I think what happens is you st- then have to start targeting other aspects of the player themselves. What if they can act because 
what if they're being forced to act against their will, not because of mind control, but because somebody has their loved ones? That becomes a horror in itself as you're forced to watch them get tortured unless you act uh, to the benefit of somebody else. Um, Superman has that other classic weakness of he's affected by magic. But again, um, anything that you're going to do should not be the only tool that you use. You can use a variety of tools as long as you use and you mix and match them. It's a recipe. Okay? So... Uh, Superman uh, is weak to kryptonite, that's your salt. Uh, Superman is weak to magic, that's your pepper. Uh, and then, let's see, Lois Lane is his weakness, uh, that's your nutmeg. Okay, and then you start taking all these different things and you start playing around with them and saying, okay, well, what is it about the character's psychology that I can play around with? Uh, Superman, uh, Superman does not kill people. Well, what if you made him believe that he did kill somebody? How would you screw with him that way? I think one of the things that I really, really, uh, one of the most, in my opinion, brilliant moves that I saw that somebody, um, spoilers here, and, cause, and I have no idea which Batman comic this was in. I can't remember, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's where Raza Gould, in an attempt, he was taking down the Justice League, and in an attempt to preoccupy Batman, he unearthed Bruce Wayne's parents' bodies. Yeah, okay. Mm, okay, and yeah. suspended them over a Lazarus pit. That is a horror situation for Bruce Wayne. And I think the key there is, is that maybe the reader reading it may not look at it as being pure horror, but it is. Because if you are role-playing a character, it means you are in the mindset of that character. Thus, the implication for Bruce Wayne, not for Batman, but for Bruce Wayne, is one of horror. That's uh, Tower of Babel, by the way. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that was the, the arc. It was in Morrison's um, run on, on JLA, I think. Okay. So I, I, I really think that what you need to do is um, when you go into if – you, if you're going to run a one-shot, okay, that's, that's one thing. If you're going to run a one-shot, then you, know, you can pretty much pull whatever you want. If you're going to run multiple sessions, then you better be sure that if you're running a four-color superhero campaign, you have a huge list. And that means going beyond a person's powers, beyond their physical weakness. It's looking at the, who are they socially, who are they mentally, how are they connected to the community, how are they connected to their loved ones? How are they connected to the public? And how can you start screwing up, uh, screwing with those or twisting those, okay, one by one? Or it even may be, here's reality. I mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things about Nightmares of Future Past was the fact of it was, in, in, I considered it a, a kind of horror, uh, uh, superhero horror book because it was here's an alternate take. You go to another universe and suddenly you're seeing all these people who you knew as heroes just get wiped out and casually killed. Yeah. Okay? But, again, that was another approach to it. So, does that answer the question, or... I think it answers the question very well. (laughs) Well, I think anybody that's listening is going to understand as you're talking about all the, 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 the forethought and planning that goes into this, running a horror game is hard. Right. It it is GMing on hard mode. Right. Yeah. It is. And it one, is. Of the, one of the things I think uh, – I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, the, no, no, go ahead. One of the things for me as a GM is also finding that line. This is something that you kind of have to figure out with your players, and different players are going to have a different position yeah. where that line is. I mean, right. you know, some people's idea of horror – you know, where does it stop being fun? Right, and that's the key. I mean, you know, you have some people who their idea of a fun horror movie is the classic, you know, nineteen thirties Bela Lugosi Dracula, and right. then you have people whose idea of a fun horror movie is like Saw, 
Right. And, uh, you know, finding, you know, for me, Monst- it's about monsters. You know, if it's got monsters or ghosts or supernatural elements to it, that's what's fun for me because that makes it all, you know, about the mythology and the mystery and, and how, do you, how do you solve the problem kind of thing. Um, right. But there, there's also another line there that is often overlooked or ignored for the sake of horror, which is who are you trying to frighten? Are you trying to frighten the heroes or are you trying to frighten the player? And that's a very fine line to cross because the thing is that sometimes, um, you know, what happens, it's important that uh, game masters and players have a discussion about what it means to run in a horror game. Is it permissible for the GM to suddenly say, well, you know, uh, the X character or your your ex-loved one was raped? And suddenly you're going, oh well, that that crosses a line. Is that is that is that a line for you? Okay, it was no longer fun to play. Now the character is no longer fun to play because maybe the GM was targeting you yeah. and your sensibilities rather than the the the, the uh, protagonist or the hero's uh, sensibilities. So yeah, those I'm, are the kind of things in the, mm-hmm. uh, the my, that I try and cover. But my experience running horror games is mostly these single episodes <laughs> in a larger campaign. Mm-hmm. And with the exception of when I ran Call of Cthulhu, which I did for years. And okay. <clears throat> Call of Cthulhu is just the exact opposite of a superhero situation. Because as you were talking about, James, in a superhero game, your characters can do everything. I mean, it's impossible to predict the abilities that an individual character will bring to the table, especially when you're trying to write an adventure, right? Mm-hmm. But in Call of Cthulhu, it's the exact opposite. The player characters are completely helpless. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they are they are so overwhelmingly outmatched by the bad guys who have all kinds of amazing abilities at their disposal, and the player characters have nothing. They have right. they have guns, knives, and a jalopy. You know, uh, <laughs> and a jalopy. I love yeah. that. And and, yeah. and, and, and and so it's it's easier to do horror in that situation because everybody understands that we are completely outmatched. Right. But horror is sort of against the grain in a superhero game, and I. It's so great that we've got some specific advice on running horror in a superhero game because it's, it's a really mismatched combo. It's not an intuitive combo is I guess what I mean. We don't right. think, oh, yeah, I'll do horror in my superhero game. No way because those guys aren't afraid of anything, right? I mean I'm Daredevil. I'm the man without fear, right? right? How do you run a horror game for the guy without fear? So that, yeah. that's really cool. I'm looking forward to the book. Yeah, and you know what? I'm really forward to hearing what the fans think of the book because, again, you know, I poured everything, I poured a lot into that book, and so it, that's always the risky thing. Is with video games, at the very least, um, there are so <laughs> many, there are so many stages uh, that, that 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 comprise the way a video game is made. That yeah. eventually you become um, you become emotionally divested from some of the specifics of it, but you know, you're proud of the collaborative effort involved with it. But with the role-playing book, when you're writing it and you're, you're, you're building it from the ground up, so much of you is in there that any sort of like, well, I didn't really like this. And you're going, oh, my heart. Oh, that yeah. just yeah, hurts. It's very personal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I was kind of amused when uh, somebody on the, on the Atomic Think Tank did go, I, I hope this lets me run my Hellboy campaign. And you went, oh, and you were, you were being snarky at the time. You, you yeah. said, you know, I, I really missed the mark. I should have done that. I, I, I drew all my inspiration from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, um, but people do know you for your sense of humor. Will there be, you know, how, how much humor do you pepper into this one? 
a, a little bit. I mean, I want each book to be individual, and I think one of the things that made Hero High such a fun book yeah. uh, should remain endemic to Hero High. The next book that I'm pitching is also a very serious subject matter, but I kind of wouldn't, I would not mind doing a, a, a madcap style book because, I mean, one of my favorite characters from like the, from late 80s, early 90s was when Superman had to deal with the ambush bug. Ambush yes. bug. I loved ambush bug. You know, ambush bug, blood pool, all these characters that have, <laughs> you know, this really snarky attitude and, you know, so maybe that would be an interesting book to conquer. Probably, I don't you, think probably, it, you mean Deadpool. Oh, did I say? Oh, I said Bloodpool. Thank you, yeah. Deadpool. Yes. <laughs> I only say that because there are a million rabid Deadpool fans out there who are getting ready to throw things at the at the computer screen. <laughs> yes, yes, maybe, but you know what? I think Deadpool would have appreciated the joke. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, but true. Uh, I I don't think, however, that I'll be able to g- carry off and do a ninety thousand word source book on playing characters like Deadpool or like Ambush Bug or you know any uh, anybody of that ilk. Okay. Well, talk to me after the show. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that in jest. So, um, uh, there there are uh, one quick question for you. How how many more how many more parts to the riddle are there? Oh, there's one more part. One more part. Okay, so we'll yeah. save that for the end of the show then. Um, so we'll we'll just remember to do that at the end. Um, okay. But um, wanted to uh, um, ask you again. What what you 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 can't talk about the one that you've pitched. But uh, what what other projects are you working on right now that you're you're really excited about? That uh, I mean I mean I guess you have to sign NDAs on all the really good ones, huh? Yeah, I unfortunately <laughs> I do. But I mean the thing is that currently. Um, I'm in the process of putting together a. Um, I have two horror, uh, two horror settings. I have to articulate that properly. Horror. I have two horror settings that I'm think that I that I'm going to try and pitch, um, and uh, both of them. I uh, I like the general ideas behind them. I think one is more interesting, more innovative than the other. Um, Otherwise, I've only just gotten back into it. I'm hoping to work with Pathfinder. There's another, that's another company I deeply respect. I've done some uh, web fiction for them. I did a four-part uh, web fiction uh, thing for them. Um, and so I'm hoping to work for Pathfinder. I still like working with uh, Green Ronin. I mean, uh, everybody there, Nicole, Hal, Chris, Steve, John, um, you know, all of them are just fantastic. So, yeah. Now I mean, you said specific. Sorry. No, no, I'm just curious. You said you're prepping two heroes, our horror settings. Can you tell us what games they're for? Um, actually, I don't know yet because that's the oh. thing is that I'm preparing to try and pitch them uh, to a couple of different people. Uh, I pitched one of them uh, to a friend of mine, but unfortunately, uh, they're. Uh, uh, my friend at Crafty uh, Games, uh, run by Patrick Capera, uh, yeah. but their schedule right now is very locked down with what they're doing. But I may do work with Crafty Games just on some of the stuff that they're doing. Sure. Uh, again, I can't say anything because the work sure. involves something that I don't even think that they've announced. So, yeah. um, and there's this uh, this proposal, and the unfortunate thing is that with the proposal with Mutants and Masterminds, even if uh, if it gets greenlit, I mean, it's probably not something that's going to be heard about for at least another year or so. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, okay, and I might be doing uh, some work for um, Onyx Path uh, now that they've secured the rights for uh, a lot of the White Wolf uh, 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 backlog for, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the catalog and for well, uh, the role-playing games. Yeah, okay. uh, They haven't signed the papers yet, but that was one of the things that they announced at Gen Con was the fact that uh, they were doing uh, – they were allowed to publish now White Wolf uh, material, and it's, it's uh, filled with a lot of uh, former uh, CCPers uh, slash White Wolfers. So okay. it's going to be interesting uh, to see what they end up by uh, doing. That'd be cool. Yeah. Neat, neat. Yeah. But so, unfortunately, I don't have anything. Supernatural is the Supernatural Handbook is the only thing that's coming out uh, within this next uh, within this next few months, mm-hmm. and I don't think I have anything really except for uh, short stories. But again, short stories. It's all along the lines of you've been invited to participate in an, in an anthology, yeah. and you send in a contribution. So there's nothing really that I can talk about because simply because I haven't either submitted yet or I haven't been accepted yet. Okay. Well, I'm um, totally keeping an eye out for your Pathfinder stuff. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, uh, actually, like, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, Paizo's another, uh, Paizo's a really, uh, I like the company. I really do. And it's filled with a lot of people that, uh, I've, uh, whose names I know or I know directly, and uh, I'm hoping to do more fiction for them. So I'll continue trying to write for their uh, website until they decide that, you know, um, <laughs> I have a novel in me for them, so. Right on. <laughs> cool, cool. Very cool. I was trying desperately to think of a really good excuse to work in a story from Dragon Con because I was I've been I'm going to Dragon Con this weekend. I'm actually taking a day off of Dragon Con to record this podcast. But um you know Well you see, uh, I'm jealous of the fact that you live in Atlanta, by the <laughs> way. Because I I have not eaten at Fat Matt's rib shack in years. Uh. <laughs> there are a lot of great barbecue places. It's kind of funny because where I was living when I first moved here, I couldn't find any barbecue places. And then okay. I moved and then I moved like, you know, take take the the hand of the clock and move it about um 100 degrees, you know, counterclockwise, and uh there are barbecue places everywhere. Lots of mom and pop, you know, small businesses. Lots of guys who just have a truck and just show up at parties. You know, you can find barbecue all over the place here, and it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Nice. But, um, um, I did want to say that uh, one of my heroes in, in horror comics, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that comes off sounding like horror comics. Because yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was a big display for some book called Horror at the con, and that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, okay. There was, oh, that's yeah. awful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh no uh, i got to i got to meet bernie wrightson at oh uh, nice oh. he has he has a table in the artist alley at dragon con and um he he was showing off uh and selling prints and showing off his stuff and it just hit me like how much of everything about horror comics i love was because of his art or you know something that he contributed to oh and, very nice yeah, I just I loved his stuff, and I wanted to find a way to work that in there. <laughs> this is a little plug for Bernie. If people haven't heard of him, um, classic uh, Swamp Thing issues. Um, Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein. Yeah. Did he do some Dracula? I'm sure. Um, but classic horror comics all over the place, um, and it's writes in W R I. Um, G H T S O N. So for yes. people who want to go Google him now. That's in that era, yeah, in that era where the comics code, the comics code got revised, um, right? 
that, that allowed them. And suddenly DC and Marvel both came out with a ton of horror books. This is, Marvel came out with books like Tomb of Dracula and all that stuff that you were talking about earlier. And, and then DC came out with all of their um, House of Fear. Was that it? Uh, uh, House of Mystery? House of, House, House of Mystery and House of Secrets. Yeah. yeah. The two of them. And, uh, and, and Wrightson was like right there at that time, and he just did this amazing art that no one had ever seen before. He even drew some Batman stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, 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 it's so visually distinctive. And when you look at somebody like Magnolia, who you talked about earlier, you know, and Magnolia struggled with his own art style for a long time. Right. Anybody who has not read the original issues of Hellboy, you should go back and read the very first Hellboy stories because they're not written by Magnolia. They're written by John Byrne. Mm. And Byrne oh, really? This, huh. Yeah. And he has this great big long letter in the back of the very first trade where he says, I'm never writing Hellboy again. <laughs> okay. Magnolia came to me and said, I have this idea, but I don't think I'm a very good writer and I want you to write it for me. And Burns says, and that's just full of shit. He says, Magnolia can totally write this book, and I'm yeah. going to publicly shame him until he does it. And, but, but he struggled so much with finding a style that was his own, and, and Wrightson did all of that first. He was this wonderful role model of a guy who just does not draw the way that every superhero book looks. Right. And, and that's okay. You can embrace that, and you can create your own style, and someone can look at it and say, you know, that's different. That's unique. Well, I mean, you're going you're to have to do that at some point. I mean, if you consider what you're doing to be part of an art style, if you say comic books are art, well, then you're going to have to accept the fact that, you know, what you're going to have to accept the fact that people are going to do it and have their own uh, means of expression, whether it's in the way they write or in the way they do the artwork. Or, you know, so, no, that, that's cool. Yeah, one of my favorite, um, you know, and, and, and he and Len Wein teamed up a lot. And, oh, that's right. Uh, and one of the things, one of the the books that I I, I treasure, I have this the, uh, you know, Batman Strangest Cra- Cases, you know, uh, <laughs> book. It's like one of these giant collections. But one of the one of the stories in here I really love is the story of Swamp Thing, uh, crossing over into um, Batman. So this is long before Swamp Thing became the elemental hero. He was more of yeah, just a yeah. uh, yeah. kind of a big lumpy guy who who just who couldn't even speak he could only yeah. right. think so you were always privy to his thoughts but you never got you know he could never talk to people so right. um you know it was this really cool moody piece where swamp thing is basically bringing a horror story into the batman universe if you will and it's it was it was really cool i mean you had like nazi torture supervillains you had like you know, a, a guy with a pet monkey and, and all kinds of crazy, quirky things all in one comic book story, and it works seamlessly. I mean, it's nice, yeah. fantastic piece. So, I mean... Uh, I guarantee you Magnolia's read that book. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. I think it's season Yeah. But uh, he was one of my heroes as far as uh, comic book horror icons, and it was yeah. okay. to see that. Um, and... And uh, well, so I have to admit- Jason, Jason, I mean, since we've, I think uh, Lucian's gone through a bunch of his. Um, what? Jason, did you have any favorite horror anthologies or comic book writers or? Oh gosh. Um, well, I I have uh, I've read so much Hellblazer. You know, Constantine, John Constantine right. Hellblazer yeah. over the years. It's not a superhero book except occasionally by accident, and I think that it's it's almost always at its weakest when superheroes show up. Um, but, but I remember reading the very first 
the very first Hellblazer issues ever. You know, when he we, we first met that character for the first time, and nobody knew really knew who he was. He'd just shown up in Swamp Thing a couple of times back in Alan Moore's run, you know. Mm-hmm. And we knew Constantine only from that book, but we didn't know anything about him as a protagonist. And and those early those early stories, I still have a great fondness for. Also, um, uh, the. I in a class in, in, when I get the opportunity to teach graphic novels, I teach um, the Constantine graphic novel. Um, I can't remember the name, and now all of a sudden, of course, I'm blanking on it. But it's when he goes to the he goes to America. He comes to the United States of America, and it's about a six issue long run, and uh, and it's really interesting because, it, of course, the book was being written by Garth Ennis at the time, and and so it's all about shock and awe. You know, he just wants to. Uh, to shock you, the reader, with making it more and more awful. Whatever, with every page you turn, it just gets worse. Uh, and and Ennis had no no restrictions or, or shame in terms of what he would put on that book. Um, and it gave us a really interesting, very cynical view of the United States. So it was not only horror, and there's plenty of horrifying elements in that story, but it's also really biting political satire and commentary, which I, I dig. So when you get the chance to combine those two things together, that's some pretty great books. Nice. Yeah. I uh, I never I for a while there I had gotten out of comics, um, not because I didn't love them, but just because I sort of got tired of the um, uh, the the conflict of the summer, the big summer crossover oh, events. Oh, it's a killer! Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it it started with like Secret Wars two, and then it started yeah. going. Yeah. And at the time, I sort of was like, okay, I'm done with it. And the problem was is that it was sort of. Um, it was uh, kind of straddling a gap there between the time that I had lost, I'd started losing interest in sort of the conventional superheroes in comics, uh, the way they were being portrayed at the time. And uh, but before I would, I was really starting to appreciate the way story was being done. So it actually took me a while. I had to go back um, after people had started talking about it, and the, 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 a lot of the runs were done before I started getting into, uh, you know, a uh, Hellblazer or Constantine yeah. or uh, Sandman. Or yeah. any of these other books before I really had an appreciation of what they were trying to do. That's right. You know, yeah. and I, I think that's one of the reasons why I liked. Uh, but one of the reasons why I, I was a huge fan of like BPRD was because the art style in itself was part of the storytelling. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. you know, Magnolia's layouts, the way that he lays out the page, and the way he uses word balloons to guide you through his unusual layouts. It's right. Just, it's a it's a master class on how to. On how to create mood and, and and tell a story visually, it's genius. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that I really have always enjoyed about graphic storytelling in, in general. It's just the um, the way that you can present an image and guide somebody through it yeah. by by where you point their eyes and use yeah. word balloons <laughs> for that. And it's it's something that you know a lot of comic book artists and, and authors do not take advantage of. And uh, it's kind of a shame, but when somebody like Mignola gets behind there and, and really gets his game on, man, you can do some really cool things. Like you could be staring at an image, go through and read it, and you suddenly are kind of pulled back after you've read it. Because I know yeah. I usually one of the, when I stop reading the word balloons, I kind of look over the page again to see if I missed any details and something yep. surprising can jump yep. out at you. Yep. Right. Like yeah. um, or like old Will Eisner's stuff where the text and the the line art sometimes blur into each yeah. other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, that's that's always fantastic. And he he actually did some good kind of creepy stories, even if it wasn't outright horror. But I mean, he had a lot of really um, moody noir pieces with the spirit. Yeah, yeah, he liked to get kind of surreal sometimes, and and uh, and some of his some of his modern graphic novel stuff, you know, Contract with God and things like that. They're not horror stories by any stretch, but they they show a kind of emotional depth, and you you. They're very sad and tragic, um, right? Yeah, and and you don't expect that from a lot of these stories, and uh, they're they're right. wonderful reading. And another one of my another one of the things that I, um, as far as books that I enjoyed reading, as far as sort of horror books, but The Goon. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they're making an animated movie of that. Yeah, I saw the I saw it actually. Uh, I saw their demo. Mm-hmm. That they did, and yeah, it looks fantastic. They did a good job with the animation, capturing the style, everything. I haven't gotten a chance to read Goon yet. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh, the Goon is a very sort of weird. Um, it's it's a very strange tale, it, it, and it borders from being really. It goes from being really, really funny to really, really tragic. Because what you ha- what happens is you have this guy who's a mob enforcer for a mob boss you never see, and uh-huh. but the style is done. Uh, it's kind of almost depression era yeah. uh, architecture and look, yeah. and it takes place in a uh, in a city that looks like it's straight out of like the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, maybe depression era. Yeah. But the city's infected by zombies, and it's him either <laughs> doing things against other uh, uh, against other mob bosses and yeah. their enforcers, or fighting the um, uh, the voodoo priest. And his minions, and it, for a while there it was actually it was going really really um, it was a very amusing one. It was a very sort of tongue in cheek and very violent and a lot of fun and it 's gotten a lot more serious as it 's gone along um, but it 's definitely one well uh, well worth picking up to take a look at, especially the uh, the first issues um, yeah I, I do I do recommend it. It is a fun read All right good good thanks sure. So, I'm trying to think if we've missed any any topics that we want to touch on. Is there anything else about Supernatural that you wanted to talk about before we uh, give the last clue? Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, as far as Supernatural, uh, the Supernatural handbook is concerned, people are wondering if they can run this style of campaign or that style of campaign. Um, Honestly, the book gives you presents you with rules and everything, but it, a lot of it is also how do you... Uh, I decided to treat the audience as knowing how horror games were run. I cover the basic conventions, and then I also start covering some very uh, high-level uh, design philosophies behind uh, running horror games. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what people make of the book, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about how they applied the book to their campaign. All right, so let's give people the rest of the the riddle there. All right, so I'm going to read the riddle in full now. Okay. Okay. Um, Smell not the bouquet when flushed, nor take exaltation in their flight. Murder not their unkindness, nor seek parliament with the uneducated brood and gaggle. But always, always find charm in their company, and listen not to the deceit of the host. So the final line is... But always, always find charm in their company and listen not to the deceit of the host. Now, here is the question. What 12 things am I speaking of? And list them individually. 
That's going to be tricky. Yeah, okay. it is. <laughs> All right, guys. So hopefully, um, hopefully we'll have at least uh, we're we're gonna we're we're gonna definitely pick the first three people. So if you know if you've skimmed ahead to listen to the riddle clues, please go back and listen to the episode. I think we've had had a really good conversation here. Um, uh, definitely. And actually, I'm going to also um, I'm also going to send you over the. Um, uh, the message system. Do you want to do the riddle in writing as well as the answer? Unless you don't want to see the answer just yet. Um, I well, I, I'll actually let you um, uh, give the answer. I'll, I'll try. I, I I'm gonna guess, and I'm gonna just wait and see. Um, okay. And we'll we'll see who posts and uh, see if they're right. But since I'm not gonna play right. uh, because I don't want to steal any prizes from anybody. <laughs> I'll, I'll sit and kind of watch and see what their guesses are, and then I'll wait to see what what uh, what you turn around with. I'll let you kind of judge. If, All right, if you that have sounds time good. For that. Okay, fantastic. All right, guys. Well, Jason, thank you for for jumping in, and uh, oh, an absolute pleasure to be here, and an honor to meet you, Lucian. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, the pleasure was mine. Thank you very much for having me, Lucian. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was a pleasure meeting you at Gen Con. It's a pleasure having the conversation with you, and I hope to have many more in the future. Thank you very much. I, I thank you for the uh, for having me on. All right, great. And to everybody listening, uh, we will um, we will be taking a, a break from uh, podcasting more than likely for the next few weeks, as I am going from one convention to the next. Um, I might be able to squeeze in a uh, a podcast in about two or three weeks here, but probably not another Beacon City adventure podcast um, until. Uh, October, so we'll probably won't have a Beacon City podcast in September just because of timing. I've got uh, three conventions in one month, and, and despite the fact that there are five weekends in September, that's still pretty rough. <laughs> so, thanks again for listening, everybody, and um, I hope you tune in again for next time. Uh, until next time, stay vigilant.